Let's pray together. Father, we tremble to think that we might open your word and abuse it, misunderstand it, misapply it. And so this morning, as we think about things that are so hard to understand and that brothers and sisters have differences about, I do pray that you'd come to us and give us a spirit of wisdom and insight into your word to hear from you, open hearts, to hear everything that you would say to us. And Lord, you know our weaknesses and our blind spots, and, and we don't know those too often. So we do pray for your mercy as well. As we pray, as we pray every week, that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Our bread and butter here at Kenwood Baptist Church is verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Scripture. But I want to pause our verse-by-verse -verse exposition in 1 Corinthians because I wasn't happy where we left things last time when we were studying uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm afraid that I may have raised more questions than I answered with respect to two of the gifts that Paul mentions in the gift list of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verses 8 through 10. So you can open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 8 through 10. Those two gifts that we mentioned there that we talked about were prophecy and tongues. And I'm not sure that we dug down deep enough into what these gifts are and into whether they are still alive and well today within the church. And, and these are not small issues for us today for a couple of reasons. First, we need to know how and why we do and don't do things here at Kenwood Baptist Church. Obviously, we don't see the gift of tongues or prophecy at work in our own worship services. And so why is that? Are we quenching the spirit? Or is there perhaps a better explanation than just simply concluding that we're quenching the spirit? If there is an explanation, it would need to be a biblical explanation. And so we would do well just to consider more carefully what that, that is. But also... This is not a small issue for us because the questions that I want to answer today are not addressed directly in our church's confessional statements. If you look at our confessional statements, the Abstract of Principles and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, you're looking at what all of us as members have agreed to think that we believe are fundamental to the Christian faith. And so, but you can look at both of those statements and you're not going to find anything explicit about whether prophecy and tongues still exist as gifts for the church today. So what that means is that within our church, we're going to have members who may not have the same point of view on this question. That's expected, not a surprise to us. And we, we understand that. So some people would say that such differences among us mean that we should, just shouldn't come down on one side or the other on this from the pulpit. Now, I, I disagree with that because I think we need to have our consciences under the authority of Scripture. And if, if Scripture speaks to the issue, we at least need to understand what the, the, the issues are and we need to understand what it says. The majority of the elders have a position on this, and it's good and right for us to consider why that is the case. Even if at the end of the day, some of us, um, you know, have to agree to disagree about these things. And even if at the end of the day, we don't, we are saying up front, we, we do want this. We don't want people to divide over this. We don't want the body to divide over differences over this issue. So if at the end of this, you're not convinced by the, the whole, entire case that I'm, I'm making here, I, I just want to say up front that the last thing I would want 
you to do is to leave or feel unwelcomed because that's, that's just not the case at all. There are some things not mentioned in our confessions that we might agree to disagree about. That, that's okay. So what I want to do this morning is to ask and to answer three questions. They're printed in your bulletin. And I want to say as a, a word of warning up front, the first point, the first question that we ask and answer is going to be longer than the second two. But here's the, here are the questions that we're going to ask and answer. What is the gift of prophecy? The second question is, what is the gift of tongues? And then the third question is, are prophecy and tongues for today? Now, the most controversial of these points, well, they're all controversial, but uh, the most controversial, probably the third one, uh, I, would, or I would imagine that we could probably maybe come to a lot of agreement on points one and two, but the, 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 probably the hardest one is, is the third one. And, and the reason that this sermon's a little bit different than usual is because I'm not going to be looking at one text and walking us through one text. We're going to be looking at a lot of different texts. So you need to have your Bible out. This will be kind of like sword drill for a while. We'll be turning and flipping pages. And you may not be able to get to every text that I read here, so maybe just write things down as, as we go along. So first question we want to ask and answer is, what is the gift of prophecy? Now, you should have your Bibles up into 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Let me just read that again, just so we can get our bearings. It says this, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, and to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, the first thing that we've got to remember about this text is that both prophecy and tongues are listed here as gifts from the Spirit. Verse 11 says that each item in this list is given by the Spirit, to each one individually, just as God wills. That means that we can't manipulate these things. They are sovereign grace gifts from God through the Spirit. Now, the one we want to focus on here in this first instance is on prophecy, and prophecy in particular appears not simply in this gift list, but also in other gift lists that Paul has written in the New Testament. Romans chapter 12 and verse 6. Since we have these gifts, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us, given to us, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28. God has appointed in the church prophets. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets. So that Paul lists prophecy as a gift in his letters is no surprise to us. The apostle Peter himself, when he preached in Acts chapter 2, he said that the new covenant age and the giving of the Spirit would be marked by the gift of prophecy. So you might look at this one, Acts chapter 2, in verses 16 through 18. It says this, But this is what was spoken of, through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Indeed, what he's saying here is that the spirit of prophecy falls on the disciples at Pentecost. That's what happens. And Peter, in his sermon, is explaining the meaning of that. And throughout the rest of the book of Acts, that's what's happening when the spirit falls. And so it is no surprise, we see, after the coming of the spirit in the book of Acts, it's no surprise when we read, like we did some weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verses 4 to 5, it's no, it's no surprise that Paul says that both men and women are prophesying when the Corinthians gather for worship. 
There's no question that prophecy is a gift in the New Testament. The question is, what is this gift? This is what we need to spend some time thinking about. Now, there are some people, some commentators, who argue that, that prophecy is just inspired teaching, which, you know, somebody comes up and they have a text and they just explain what the text means, or they hear a revelation, say, in the first century from an apostle, and they just explain what that revelation means. But teaching involves an explanation of an already delivered revelation, and we don't have any examples of a prophet teaching scripture in this sense, in the New Testament. The prophets gave revelation rather than teaching on texts that had already been given or on revelation that had already been given. So some people think it's inspired teaching. I don't really think that's what it is. Other people have argued that prophecy is the equivalent of preaching. One commentator, Anthony Thistleton, he says it this way. He says, prophecy amounts to healthy preaching, proclamation, or teaching, which is pastorally applied for the appropriation of gospel truth and gospel promise in their own context of situation to help others, end quote. And that perspective is represented by a, a lot of readers of Scripture. But again, I'm not persuaded that this gift of prophecy is just simply preaching because preaching, too, involves explaining and applying a revelation from God that has already been given. So when Jim or I stand up here before you and preach the Bible that we're, what we're doing is, is we're explaining and applying a revelation that's already been given to us in the Scripture. We're not giving to you new revelation. So our sermons are not inerrant. Amen? Uh, our sermons are not inerrant. This is inerrant. The revelation is inerrant. We try to explain this and apply this. But our sermons are not inerrant. This is inerrant. So prophecy, on the other hand is itself a spirit-inspired revelation from God. Um, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 2, says this about prophecy. It says, There were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now catch this. These human prophets are prophesying and speaking, and yet Luke says that when those prophets spoke, the Holy Spirit said. That means that the prophet's speech consisted of divine speech. The prophecy is not about God's word. It is God's word. That's how prophecy works in the New Testament. And so I would argue that our baseline definition of prophecy from the New Testament should not be that it is inspired teaching or, or just the virtual equivalent of preaching, but rather, this is what prophecy is. Prophecy is the reception of a spontaneous revelation from God and then communication of that revelation to instruct, to encourage, and warn the people of God. Let me say that again. Prophecy is the reception of a spontaneous revelation from God and then the communication of that revelation to instruct and encourage and warn the people of God. Tom Schreiner says it this way. He says, God communicates his word directly to the mind of the prophet. The prophet may not communicate immediately what God has revealed, but the revelation itself is spontaneous. Furthermore, he says this, the feature that separates prophecy from teaching is that those who prophesy communicate revelations from God. That's not what's going on in teaching. So preaching is about God's word. Prophecy is God's word. That's the crucial, crucial difference. If that is true, then there are some crucial implications for us to consider. If prophecy is God's word, then as God's word, it can have no errors in it. You would think that that would be a fairly straightforward observation about prophecy. It certainly was the way prophecy was depicted in the Old Testament. But it's not a straightforward point among many of those today who claim to practice the gift of prophecy in their churches. Those who practice the gift of prophecy tend to argue that sometimes prophecies have errors in them. The most famous and persuasive advocate of that point of view is Wayne Grudem. I know that many of you know that name. I love Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem is a good brother. He's, he's actually a, a friend. 
But I disagree with him about this. But Wayne argues that the New Testament, that New Testament prophecy is not infallible like Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy was infallible. This is why we had that reading from Deuteronomy chapter 18 a while ago. You remember, if an Old Testament prophet's prophecy failed to come true, what happened to that prophet? Deuteronomy 18. But the prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. In the Old Testament, prophecy was this all or nothing thing. If a prophet spoke erroneously, he was not speaking for God and was punished severely, judged severely for speaking presumptuously in God's name. A prophecy could no more err than God could err. Since God cannot err, and God's the one inspiring the, the prophecies, neither can those prophecies err. But Grudem and other people who hold that uh, position say that New Testament prophecies aren't like that. They argue that New Testament prophets sometimes make mistakes. Their prophecies are sometimes a mixture of truth and error. And that's why sometimes those who claim to prophesy today are sometimes wrong. Have you ever seen this? A TV preacher or somebody make a prophecy and it doesn't come true. Or perhaps you've been in a context or a church where there's a prophecy given and the prophecy doesn't come true. Well, they're arguing that that's what's to be expected because sometimes prophecies don't come true in the New Testament because they're not like the Old Testament. Well, what is the evidence for that point of view? They are claiming scriptural support for this view. Well, here's why they think this. They observe that in the New Testament, sometimes prophecies are judged. So we're studying 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29 says this. And let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. So a certain number of prophets would speak. And then other prophets would judge those prophecies to see if they were correct. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything. Carefully hold fast to that which is good. And so they, those who hold that prophecies have errors in them, they argue that it's clear that sometimes prophecies are right, sometimes they're wrong, because they have to be judged. Therefore... These prophecies have to be judged and evaluated so that you can chew up the meat and spit out the bones. That's how you treat New Testament prophecy. They also argue that some New Testament prophecies are disobeyed. So you look at a text like Acts chapter 21 and verse 4. There were some prophets who told the apostle Paul. They, it says they kept telling Paul through the Spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. Well, guess what Paul did next? He went to Jerusalem. It looks like he defied the orders and went to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21 and verses 13 through 14. And it says in Acts 19, 21 and, and in chapter 20 and verse 22 that Paul was led by the Spirit to go into Jerusalem. And so they would argue Paul was right to disobey those prophecies. Those prophecies were in error because the Spirit had told Paul to go to Jerusalem. At least that's how the argument goes. Related to this, they also argue that there, there's another prophet in the book of Acts. His name is Agabus. And they argue that Agabus was wrong in his prophecy about what would happen to Paul when he went to Jerusalem. Um, Paul was handed over by the Jews to the Romans. And if you look at Acts chapter 21 and verse 11, it says this. It says, Agabus took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. So you got Agabus standing there. He's bound up his own feet and hands with a belt, Paul's belt. He says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And yet, we know what happens when Paul went to Jerusalem. That's not precisely what happened, they would argue. Paul wasn't handed over to the Romans by the Jews. The Romans rescued Paul from the hands of the Jews. 
And so they claim that proves that sometimes, because Agabus' prophecy was wrong, sometimes New Testament prophets make mistakes in their prophecies. Therefore, we should expect New Testament prophets today, people you hear making prophetic utterances today, sometimes they make mistakes. Now, at first blush, it seems really compelling. Those are, it seems like, really compelling reasons to detect mistakes in New Testament prophecies. But I want to argue that every single one of those reasons that they give for this is incorrect and based on a misreading of Scripture. The most important thing that they have wrong is the idea that Old Testament prophecy and New Testament prophecy are different. And I think we have to challenge that right off the bat because when Peter says in Acts 2, you remember Acts 2 was just read uh, right before this, but Peter says in Acts 2, your sons and daughters will prophesy. When Peter says that, he is quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from Joel chapter 2 in verse 28. And Peter is saying that the Spirit-inspired speech that we read about in Acts chapter 2 is a fulfillment of Joel 2, verse 28. If prophecy is something fundamentally different from what Joel 2.28 is predicting, then the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2 cannot be a fulfillment of Joel. But Peter is saying it is a fulfillment of Joel. In other words, Peter thinks that there's continuity between Old Testament prophecy and the New Covenant miracle that he was witnessing in Jerusalem. That means that the burden of proof is on those who want to argue that New Testament prophecy is somehow different from Old Testament prophecy. Peter is thinking that, no, this is the fulfillment of, of the Joel prophecy. So the burden of proof is on those who want to say that the gifts are different, but the reasons that they cite for saying that they're different don't come close, I don't think, to meeting that burden. Testing prophecies, the fact that we see them testing prophecies in 1 Corinthians, that's not evidence that sometimes true prophets were wrong. Rather, testing prophecies is evidence that they were doing the very same thing that the people of God did in the Old Testament. What did Deuteronomy 18 say? It said, test the prophets, the, the prophets by testing their prophecies. And they distinguished true prophets from false prophets by testing whether or not their oracles came through. And the same thing is happening <clears throat> with the New Testament prophets. So, if a so-called New Testament prophecy failed to, to come true, even in the New Covenant, that prophet would have been rejected as a false prophet. That's what I think these verses are indicating. Also, if you look back at Acts in chapter 21 and verse 4, Paul did not disobey the prophecy when he went to Jerusalem. The best way to read that text, and I'll give you time to go look at it later, but the best way to read that is if the Spirit had told the prophets about trouble in Jerusalem, that was the prophecy. The prophets told him based on that not to go. That was an application of the of the prophecy. The prophecy was correct, but their application obviously wasn't correct. Their prophecy was inspired, but the application of the prophecy wasn't. Their application was not a part of the prophecy. By the way, if you're going to take the view that the Spirit inspired the prophets to tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and the Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem, you're going to make the Holy Spirit contradict himself. We cannot go there. We cannot go there. God the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. Also, another thing, Paul himself later agrees when it comes to Agabus' prophecy. Paul himself agrees with Agabus' prophecy. In Acts chapter 28 and verse 17, when Paul explains that he was handed over to the Romans by the Jews, that's just like Agabus predicted that it would happen. Paul believed that his prophecy was fulfilled. So it's important to understand Agabus, just like you would Old Testament prophets, who would often use symbolic imagery rather than exact descriptions in their prophecy. And that's what Agabus was doing when he was describing being bound up with, uh, when he put the belt around his, his hands and was saying that this is the way things would happen. It was symbolic. It wasn't an exact depiction. So if you do that, it's clear that Agabus was absolutely correct in his prophecy about how Paul would come into the hands of the Romans. So what's the bottom line on this? What is New Testament prophecy? It is spirit-inspired revelation that is communicated to God's people. As spirit-inspired utterances, they are inerrant and infallible, just like Old Testament prophecy. 
And God used the New Testament prophets alongside of the apostles as the foundation of the church. It says in Ephesians 2.20. So the implication of all of that, and I know this was a mouthful, the implication of all that is that even if there were still prophecy today, it would have to be infallible and inerrant. If the Spirit is saying it, the Spirit can never be wrong. It would have to be the same, it would have to have the same authority that the Bible does, because it would be, like the Bible, a spirit-inspired utterance. That would mean that the foundation, an implication of this would mean that the foundation of the church has not yet been laid down because the prophets are still speaking. It would also mean that the central place that really that we give to scripture in our worship, that would have to change. And I, I'm going to argue in a little bit that that's an implication we can't abide. So those who claim prophetic utterances today, I think they avoid that implication by claiming that their prophecies are sometimes fallible. <clears throat> and I'm glad that they don't set their prophecies up next to scripture as equally authoritative, but I'm, I'm saying that that's inconsistent. If you're saying and you're claiming that your prophecies are fallible, you're really not talking about the same gift that's described in the New Testament because those prophecies were infallible. So what is the gift of prophecy? We've answered that question. Second question, what is the gift of tongues? If you look at chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One of those manifestations at the end of verse 10 says various kinds of tongues and even the interpretation of tongues. So obviously Paul is dealing with this gift that's called tongues, but the question that we need to answer is what exactly is the nature of this gift? And related to that, we also need to answer this question. Concerning those who claim the gift of tongues today, does that practice match the gift that we find in the New Testament? And the reason I'm saying that is because many of those who are claiming to practice the gift of tongues today um, claim that, they, that, that tongues are, are like these ecstatic utterances, which means speaking words with no discernible code or linguistic pattern. There's no, no meaning to them. And so is that what the Bible describes as the gift of tongues? We have to ask and answer that question. There are only two books in the Bible that mention the gift of tongues. Those two books are the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians. In, and so I want to look at both of those quickly. In Acts, the, the gift of tongues first appears in Acts chapter 2, which we read about earlier in the service. Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls on the disciples for the very first time. And in verse 2, it says this. It says, Suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So it's clear that the Holy Spirit is filling these people and enabling them to speak in a way that they would not otherwise be able to speak. But the question is, what kind of language was it that they were speaking? Look at verse 6. And when this sound occurred, <clears throat> the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the districts of Libya and Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Notice three things that are clear about the gift of tongues as they are appearing right here. First of all, they're natural human languages. People from all over the world are gathered in Jerusalem. Many different languages are represented there, and yet the Holy Spirit enables these Galileans these hicks from Galilee who don't know those languages to speak in those languages. And the people who spoke those languages, the native speakers, they, they understood them. 
And they heard them proclaiming to them the mighty deeds of God. But notice this as well. It's not just that they were natural human languages. The tongues speakers were communicating a message. According to verse 11, the tongue speakers were speaking of the mighty deeds of God. It doesn't tell us what those mighty deeds were. Nevertheless, I think in context, it's most likely that those mighty deeds were just accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you think about the mighty deed that Peter bears witness to in his sermon, it's about the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you think about what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1-8, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will bear witness of me. Okay, so it looks like that's what's going on right here. They're bearing witness probably the, to the, the works of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So it was most likely the mighty deeds of God were a message about Jesus. But notice also that Peter says that tongues speaking is a fulfillment of the prophecy from Joel 2. And this is key. Don't miss this. Joel 2 says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Peter believes that tongues speaking amounts to a fulfillment of that prophecy, which means that tongues speaking amounts to prophecy spoken in a human language unknown to the speaker. All these people are speaking in tongues, and, and Peter says, this is the fulfillment of your sons and, sons and daughters will prophesy. <clears throat> it's a form of prophecy. That means that these tongue speakers were issuing divine revelation along the same lines of the prophetic utterances that we just discussed. The gift of tongues is mentioned two more times in the book of Acts. We don't have time to look at them closely. Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius and all those others, they spoke in languages that they did not know. And Peter makes it clear that when they spoke in those languages, it was the exact same gift that appeared in Acts chapter 2. It wasn't a different gift. It says, it, says in Acts chapter, it says in Acts 11, 17, God gave, them this, um, God gave the same gift to them as he gave it to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 19, verse 6, there's no indication that the gift is any different there. So it's very clear that tongue speaking in the book of Acts is the spirit-inspired ability to speak revelation from God in a language that the speaker doesn't know. <clears throat> so here's the question. We've been looking at 1 Corinthians. Is Paul describing the same gift in the text that we're studying? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through chapter 14. Some people think that the gift described in 1 Corinthians is different from what we just read about in the book of Acts. Some people think that while tongues may have been human languages in Acts, they're different, they're like ecstatic utterances without meaning in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Why would they think that? Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2 says this. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And so those who argue that the gift in 1 Corinthians is different from the book of Acts they make a number of observations about this verse. First, they, they, they observe that these tongues are talking to God and not to other people, like it was in the book of Acts. Second, they, they note that these tongues don't have a discernible meaning or message, as in the book of Acts, because the, the tongue speaker is speaking mysteries, it says. Nobody understands a mystery, and yet the tongue is inspired by the Spirit, so, therefore, these must be inspired, ecstatic utterances that don't necessarily have any discernible meaning. I want to argue that that understanding of 1 Corinthians 14.2 is, is incorrect. I appreciate that people are, are trying to understand the scripture when they interpret it, but I, I don't think it's a correct understanding. Let me tell you why. First of all, when Paul says that one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, he, he explains what he means by that in the very next phrase. In what sense are they speaking not to men but to God? Well, he says, for no one understands them. The reason he's speaking to God not to men is because nobody understands the language he's speaking in except for God. But Paul goes on to say that this is not a good thing in the assembly. Paul goes on to say that we should aspire for people to understand what is spoken when somebody speaks in the church... And that is why Paul prefers prophecy, but he allows tongues as long as there is an interpreter. 
in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 5 says, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Paul says in the church, we want people to be edified, but no one's edified if nobody understands what's being spoken. Paul's not encouraging what he's describing in verse 2, but he's correcting it. He doesn't want people just speaking only to God and not to the rest of the congregation. Paul's correcting it in the direction of the gift that we read about in Acts, where people could understand what was being spoken by the tongue speaker. In that case, not because they had interpreters, but because it was their native language. But the second thing here, Paul clearly says that tongues need an interpretation if people in the congregation don't understand the language. So look at chapter 14, verses 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn. And let one interpret. But if, if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Which means if there's not an interpreter, the tongue should not be heard in the assembly. If there is an interpretation, that means that the language has meaning. It's not a meaningless repetition of syllables. This too agrees with the way that the gift is described in the book of Acts. But what if some people have said, well, okay, yes, maybe it's a discernible language, but it's actually a heavenly language, not a human one. But I don't think that Paul, Paul's message here sustains that. Look at, at chapter 14 and verses 10 and 12. Paul says, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian. And the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you're zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Now think about what this means. Paul believes that the tongues have to be understood in order to edify the hearers in the congregation. If people understand the language understand the language that's being spoken, that's wonderful. If they don't, but there's an interpreter, that's just as good. But if no one understands and there's no interpreter, that's not good for all the people who are gathered to hear. And Paul doesn't want that kind of uninterpreted tongue to occur in the church. But notice what he says when talking about those uninterpreted tongues. He says that they belong in the category of languages in the world and that no kind is without meaning. I think this implies that Paul thinks tongues are human languages. It's not a heavenly language or a static utterance. It's some kind of a human language that can be understood or not whenever it happens in, in the congregation. So that too is in keeping with the gift as we saw it described in the book of Acts. Well, what about the fact that Paul says that tongue speakers speak mysteries by the Spirit? Doesn't that indicate that these are just ecstatic utterances? I would argue that that question misunderstands what Paul means by mystery. When Paul uses the term mystery, he does so in a very specific way in his writings. It does not refer to something that is currently a mystery. It refers to something that was formerly a mystery but has now been made known by the gospel. Even in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 7, we saw this earlier. Paul says in, in verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. Now we apostles are speaking God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, which, was, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. But look at verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Now think about what that means. When Paul says mystery, he's referring to the truths revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. When Paul says mystery, he's using it just like that. It's not something currently hidden. It was something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed in the gospel. So when Paul says the one who speaks in a tongue speaks mysteries in 1 Corinthians 14 2, by the Spirit, he's not talking about gibberish. He's talking about gospel mysteries that have been revealed to us in the gospel. 
Again, this is right in line with the gift as we see it in the book of Acts, where they were bearing witness to the mighty deeds of God when they spoke in tongues. So we should regard the gifts, I'm arguing, in 1 Corinthians as the exact same gift that we read about in the book of Acts. Paul seems to treat a translated tongue as the functional equivalent of a prophecy. 1 Corinthians 14, 5, Greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongue, unless he interprets, so that the church may receive edifying. Paul seems to think that prophetic revelation and tongues revelation are equivalent, as long as the tongue is, in, is interpreted. I think that too is in line with Acts, where speaking in tongues is viewed as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that your sons and daughters will prophesy. Okay, so what's the gift of prophecy? We've answered that. What's the gift of tongues? Last question. Are prophecy in tongues for today? Everybody turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And look at verse 19. The Apostle Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What does it mean that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, as it says in verse 20? It doesn't mean that the church is built on them like it's built on Jesus. Jesus is the only one to die and to rise for us. That's, Jesus alone does that. His work stands alone as the ultimate foundation of the church. So in what sense can apostles and prophets be the foundation then? Only in the sense that Jesus himself indicated that they would be the authoritative proclaimers of God's revelation to God's people. They would lay the foundational revelation that God's church would be built upon. This is most clearly seen in the way that Jesus spoke to his apostles. You remember when Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ in Matthew chapter 16? How does Jesus respond to Peter? Peter says Jesus is the Christ Jesus answered and says to him, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. Jesus says that God has revealed something to Peter and that Peter has now spoken that revelation. And then he says, Jesus says he will build his church Upon that revelation, the revelation is all about Jesus, but it's coming through God's inspired apostle. And Peter and the other apostles' confession would be, in that sense, the rock upon which Jesus would build his church. Jesus would, would later tell the apostles that after he leaves them, the Spirit would come to them to remind them of everything that Jesus taught them and that the Spirit would lead those apostles into all truth. It says in John 14 and John 16. The apostles would lay the foundation of God's truth upon which the church is built. Now think back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. In that verse, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This means that the unique revelatory work of the apostles is similar to and tied to that of the prophets. Does the gift of apostleship still exist today? We believe that it does not. In fact, we would insist that it does not. To be an apostle, somebody had to have been commissioned directly by Jesus, sent out by Jesus, and that person had to have been an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. There are no more apostles today because there are no eyewitnesses today. It was a foundational office within the church. Their revelation had a special inerrant, infallible function in the church, and we have their revelation inscribed for us in the New Testament. There are no more apostles today. There's no more scripture being written today because of that. 
But notice that here in Ephesians 2.20, Paul is putting the prophets right next to the apostles in the same category as foundation to the building of the church. Unless you want to argue that the foundation is not complete, then you would need to conclude that the foundational, infallible prophetic word has also been completed as well. Tom Schreiner expresses the conclusion this way. Now, if such authoritative apostles don't exist today, and if prophets spoke infallible words like the apostles, and if the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, then there are good grounds to conclude that the gift of prophecy has ceased as well, just like apostleship has. Since prophecy is defined here as speaking the infallible word of God, and since the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, there are no longer prophets today since the foundation of the church has been laid. And I would argue that if tongue speaking in Acts and 1 Corinthians are spirit-inspired, infallible revelations like prophecy, then those two would have ceased as well. Because the foundation has been laid and there is no more foundation to be laid. So if all of this is true... I think there's some implications for us. Even if you're not quite convinced by the entire argument I've made here, and I've already said up front, I know everybody may not be convinced by, by the whole thing. I still think there's some implication for, implications for all of us to consider. The first one is this. We want our worship services to be guided and shaped by the Bible. If the case I've made is correct, then we should not expect to see prophecies in tongues operating currently in our worship services. But even if you don't agree with the argument I've made, it's still important to notice that the New Testament's description of worship does not put prophecy in tongues at the center. I'm not arguing it's not there, but it's not at the center. Think about Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Early church, first congregation comes together. It says, And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer which is what we want to be devoted to here. We want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to our fellowship together, to the breaking of bread here at the Lord's table, and to prayer, our direct addresses to God. That's what we are devoting ourselves to here in our worship services. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 13 through 15, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and to teaching. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. Which means we have to have the word, the apostolic testimony, prophetic testimony at the center of everything we do in our worship. We want to sing the word. We want to pray the word. We want to preach the word. That's what we want to be at the center. Because we want God's word working powerfully through the Holy Spirit to shape us and to form us. This is how the early church worshiped. We're striving to emulate them because we believe that these are the means that God uses to grow and to strengthen us. So that's the first thing. We want our worship services to be guided and shaped by the Bible. Second implication. So much of contemporary expressions of prophecy and tongues do not match what we find in the Bible. And I think that this observation is true whether you think they continue or not in the current day. In my view, that fact does raise questions about those experiences that we often see reported. In Scripture, prophecy is infallible and inerrant. That's not the case in many contemporary expressions of prophecy. They don't claim that to be the case. But in Scripture, the gift of tongues consists of spirit-enabled ability to speak a revelation in a language that the speaker doesn't know. But that's not what's happening in the vast majority of expressions that we see today. Even if you believe that the gifts continue today, I think you ought to practice them in a way that the New Testament describes them. Where that's not happening, you ought to be concerned no matter what your view is on whether or not the gifts are for today. Third thing I want to say. What then do we make of those who claim to practice these gifts? I think I would be remiss if, if I ignored the wide range of abuses that are out there today, flying under the banner of evangelical. 
We have a wide array of prosperity hucksters and word faith false teachers who are using so-called prophetic utterances to construct their own version of the faith. And they're undermining the faith. And their new revelations are often in direct contradiction to Scripture and should be repudiated. But what about brothers and sisters who are not involved in any of that? Who have a different view on this, who believe the same gospel that we do, who are stalwart in their commitment to Scripture, like my friend Wayne Grudem, for instance. And, and they're not being carried away into all these false teachings. Those brothers and sisters, we have to acknowledge, are out there. Many of them are dear to us, and they are a great encouragement to us. And I would not wish for what I have said today to suggest a slight of my love and appreciation for them, even if we end up disagreeing on this matter of the continuation of the gifts. These are important issues, but godly people can and do come down on different sides of this. And, and I would say, even within the membership of our church, I, I really want this to be clear. Even if you don't agree with every piece of the argument I've made here, anyone who's willing to support the teachings and the order of this church is most welcome here. Last thing I'll say, last implication. We should still pray and ask and expect God to do the miraculous among us. The point of view that I've argued here is not an argument against miracles or against the power of God at work among his people right now. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about whether or not there is ongoing foundational revelation coming to us through prophecy and tongues. That's what I'm talking about. We're not talking about whether or not miracles still occur. They do occur. We ought to pray for them to happen more often. On the wider question of the miraculous, we still believe that. And we expect God to be showing himself in powerful and unexpected ways among us. And I would even say, God can miraculously enable somebody to say a language that they don't know. I've heard reports of it before. I have no reason biblically not to believe that. How does that not undermine everything you just said? What we're looking at in the New Testament, though, is not that. What we're looking at in the New Testament is a claim to prophetic utterance, infallible, inerrant prophetic utterance. Is that still happening, either through prophecy or tongues? All we're saying is, is that I'm saying is that I believe that foundation has been laid and doesn't exist anymore. But God is doing the miraculous today and every day, whether or not we see it, and we ought to be praying for him to do it more. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would use whatever I have said that is good and true and right and that conforms to your word. Use it to conform your people to your image. If I've missed it on any point, help them to forget it. And help us to be united in the truth. Father, I pray for anybody who's here who doesn't know you. I pray that they today would see their need to be saved that they would repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ who died for them and who's been raised for them and who offers them eternal life. Lord, would you do that now among us? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.